Good afternoon. My name is Sally Steenland, and I'm the Senior Policy Advisor to the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative here at the Center for American Progress. On behalf of the Center, I want to welcome you to today's event, Red Faith, Blue Faith, Religion in the 2008 Election and Beyond. We are thrilled to have such a distinguished panel of experts with us today, and we're delighted to be co-sponsoring the event with BeliefNet and its blog, Progressive Revival. When we were planning this panel in the days before November 4th, we knew what the polls were saying, but until the votes were cast and counted, we did not know who would win or by how much. Now we do. One of the materials that we handed out to you gives details of religious voter behavior on Tuesday. We see that Senator Obama made gains among virtually all religious voters from 2004, among Catholics, conservatives, and evangelicals. Today, we want to talk about religion in the 2008 election and also take a look at what lies ahead. Certainly, there's a lot to talk about. Jeremiah Wright, anti-Muslim rhetoric, pro-choice Catholics, pro-life Democrats, compassion forums. What we're not going to do is inside baseball. We're not going to do an analysis where we talk only about campaign tactics and polls. Instead, we want to focus on the larger picture and one that is more long-term. And we want to ask some salient questions. What role did religion play in this election? Is it fair to scrutinize a candidate's faith? What about his pastor? How are evangelical voters changing? Is there a generation gap among religious voters? And what role did progressive faith groups play in changing the face of religion in the public square? Given what we've learned, all that we've learned in the 2008 election, what is a good way forward? So let's get started. You can find the detailed bios of the panelists in the invitation, so I will just briefly introduce each one. To my right is Paul Rauschenbusch, the Associate Dean of Religious Life at Princeton University and moderator of Progressive Revival blog at BeliefNet. Shad Amunella is editor-in-chief of altmuslim.com and an award-winning journalist who writes about the challenges and opportunities facing Islam in America. Bern Strider is founding partner of the Eleison Group, a consulting firm committed to creating common ground between the political, business, and nonprofit worlds and America's diverse faith and values-based communities. Terence McKinley is minister to young adults at the Greater Allen AME Cathedral in New York, a 23,000-member congregation whose pastor is former Congressman Floyd, Reverend Floyd Flake. And Alexia Kelly is executive director and co-founder of Catholics in Alliance for the Common Good, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes awareness of Catholic social teaching and its core values of justice, dignity, and the common good. Here's how the panel will work. We'll start the conversation up here, and then after some discussion among ourselves, we'll open it up and take your questions. So as you're listening, please think of questions that you'd like to ask. To get us started, I'm going to ask the same question to each panelist, and this is what it is. Can you tell us about a moment during the campaign that for you crystallized something larger and significant? It could have been an event, a speech, an encounter, an incident, something either good or bad. And all of you might want to be thinking about that, too. But can you target something that happened over the past two years that embodied a larger truth? What was that moment for you, and why is it important? Paul, let's start with you. 
Well, thank you very much, Sally, and it's great to be here at CAP. Um, that moment for me was uh, the, it was directly after Jeremiah Wright came onto the scene and white Americans and Americans all, of, all around were uh, beginning to realize that actually as much as the campaign, Obama campaign, did not want it to be, it was, the race was a factor. And, um, and so I don't know if any of you have seen the Newsweek uh, kind of digging down embedded reporters, but one of the things that happened then is, is Obama's campaign manager said, we're not going to touch this, ignore it, it, we ha it has to just go away. And Obama said, no, I'm going to talk about it. And he went home and he wrote his speech and then he delivered it. It was called uh, A More Perfect Union. And for me, that was the catalyst moment uh, for a lot of people watching the debate because this is an intractable problem in America. And you had an, a candidate who did not shy away from it and acknowledged that it was real, acknowledged that it was a problem, and then came back and said, okay, we're going to it became part of his entire campaign rhetoric. He subsumed it into the message of his campaign saying, we have problems facing us, but we're going to come together, understanding different perspectives, and we're going to work towards a common future. And working at Princeton, there was such enthusiasm around that speech because not only was it kind of a pragmatic and incredibly smart way to do it, but it was inspiring. And it was, um, so, so I gathered, you know, I, I organized an event thinking maybe 25 people would come. And it was 100 people there who wanted to talk about what this meant. It felt historic. And so for me, that was the event. Um, I think that the moment for me was when the whole uh, controversy or manufactured controversy about uh, Obama's attending a, a so-called madrasa when he was you know, a child in Indonesia and, and how much traction that held in, in, the, in the public consciousness. I mean, that was a really shocking moment for me. Um, not just because of the uh, idea that going to a, you know, a, a Muslim school when you're young uh, has some bearing, but the idea that you know, religion can have such a you know, is, is supposedly have such a profound impact on you when you're a small child that can somehow trace its way all the way through to your adulthood and that and that, that is enough for people to really you know, question your competence or question your abilities when you're an adult. I mean, this is just shows you how, how, how deep uh, people feel about the influence of religion on your life that something that happens when you're a little child you know is, has some bearing on your judgment when you're when you're older and um, you know it, it informed I think for me uh, going forward from that moment uh, how the, the religious leaders that had influences on the candidates lives um, you know it, it informed for me how why that was such a big deal mm -hmm. that for so many people is this is so important what about you Burns what was your moment my moment came extremely early in the campaign, in the primary. I was faith director, senior advisor to Senator Clinton. If you remember very early on, she and Senator Obama went down to Selma, Alabama to celebrate Bloody Sunday to memorialize after walk across the Pettus Bridge. And I went down and staffed Senator Clinton. It was my first trip out on the road in this presidential race. It was anybody's. And the town was packed. They both spoke at churches about three blocks apart. And both of the sermons were boomed into the streets. And the air was electric. And the sermons ended. And they both came outside. And the crowds, just thousands of people, packed around both of these candidates. 
and we worked our way to the front of this line that's going to walk about a mile and go across this Pettus Bridge that has so much meaning for every American. And as a Mississippian um, and a guy who's driven over to Selma several times as a college student just to walk across it has significant meaning to me and, and the culture I know. And it took forever to get the front line created with Senator Obama, Senator Clinton, John Lewis, and all these others. And finally the line came together with the thousands of people behind them and I looked at this line and I realized, it's like, wow, we are in for quite a race here. It's like America has something to look at and think about. And whoever likely ends up on the composite of American presidents, this composite is going to be really different going forward. And it was quite a moment in my life and getting to be part of that. But having that realization early on that we were in for something that was unique and new and that America would change by the time it was over was um, quite a moment for me. How about you, Terrence? So, so thinking about um, the moment, I actually had several moments that sort of con con converged <laughs> into uh, sort of one higher truth. Um, the campaign season was sort of uh, characterized by highs and lows as I see it. We saw many highs. We saw Senator Obama be elected out of Iowa uh, as the first African-American, uh, uh, well, uh, African-American candidate uh, for the Democratic Party that was a very serious candidate with a very small African-American constituency. And then we, we saw that high. We saw um, high, a high later on. Uh, uh, Colin Powell uh, made a statement that I call uh, a colleague of mine, we call it the shocking so what, right? Because he forced us to look at ourselves in a way that we may not have looked at ourselves when he said, so what if Obama was Muslim? Um, if only we can get that, and that was a high moment. Uh, uh, Sally mentioned I, this church where I sit on the pastoral staff, we are. 23,000 members, and a high moment for us was that even though we're an African-American church in New York, uh, predominantly black, black church, several of our, a big portion of our constituency was voting for Hillary during the primary season. So this was a big moment, too, showed that we had gotten past the gender piece. But then there were some lows, right? We see effigies and nooses, and we see uh, some shocking comments made at some Palin rallies, and and so there, there's these dichotomies, and I think that they point to the larger truth, which is, is that there's still a need for conversation uh, in the United States around race, class, and gender, um, that we might get to a place, I think step one would be tolerance, where we can uh, honor the human dignity of one another. Um, and then I think step two, as far as an ethic for how we engage in public, is that we might have an ethic of love. Um, one one uh, scholar, is calling love, out of the Ford Foundation, is calling love the unselfish desire to see someone else's well-being, um, someone else, someone else uh, achieve their greatest well-being. And so, so that was sort of the, the um, that crystallized the larger truth, uh, thinking about those highs and lows. Yeah, um, for me, the moment was early on as well. Um, in June, uh, 
um, at this first, one of first of, of three forums on faith and, and politics. And this one was sponsored by Sojourners. It was on CNN, uh, Faith, Values, and Poverty. And we were a co-sponsor with uh, one campaign and some, uh, several other groups. Um, and a, a Roman Catholic priest asked the last question. Uh, he's the director of a major a city Catholic charities organization. And he almost didn't get the question. It was on the common good. And um, you know, we, we were worried that the, you know, this, this question wasn't going to happen. But right at the end, he asked uh, Senator Clinton um, about the common good and that you know, several of the candidates were talking about it. And he really went deeper to the sense of sacrifice and restraint that are inherent in the notion of the common good in our politics and how would she, as a candidate, talk to Americans about uh, this sense of sacrifice that was needed to face the challenges, many challenges that we face around energy and, and taxes and gun control. Um, and so I think that introduction of uh, the notion um, of the common good and shared sacrifice early on in the campaign was excellent and was picked up. I mean, by the end, both Senator McCain and Senator Obama were talking about the common good. Uh, you know, we, you could argue that um, it was, uh, you know, not as a, a full or, or a, didn't have the moral urgency that many of our faith traditions carry to the term. But I think, um, you know, it was excellent that it was, it was in the political debate. And um, there was a great op-ed uh, Tom Friedman wrote the day after the election, and he referred to this notion of the politics of the common good and how this is a moment um, where we might see we could work together to create a politics of the common good. He was quoting Michael Sandel, and there were two important challenges there. And so I think the introduction of it in the, in the debates points to this maybe larger shift. And uh, Sandel's point was that uh, the idea of the politics of the common good that we need now to meet the challenges we face go beyond kind of, or, the, or a rejection of, the voters rejected sort of uh, this notion of the common good as individual self-interest, where there's no role for government. But we also rejected a more superficial notion of the common good, where it's sort of all interest groups um, vying for their share, and that we need to go deeper to um, a sense of new engaged citizenship, sense of stewardship. So I think that might be the larger, the larger truth. Great. Paul, um, we, in all of this talk about religion being a, important in the campaign, let me ask you a question about the pastor problem, which uh, is a phrase that a lot of people talked about, um, during, commentators and uh, uh, political staffs as well. So we know that um, Obama's pastor, Jeremiah Wright, said that goddamned America, that was played over and over on YouTube, and that became a political liability for him. Many people saw uh, Sarah Palin being blessed or having hands laid on her by a Pentecostal pastor who allegedly believed in witches. Uh, Reverend John Hagee endorsed uh, John McCain, and he had some very uh, critical remarks about the Jewish faith and um, the Holocaust that uh, McCain was forced to back away from. So it seems like uh, now the pastors of politicians or the ministers who politicians associate with are really under close scrutiny. Is this something new? And if it's something new, what do you think is triggering it? And is it fair? So in other words, if I'm doing uh, opposition research for a candidate, is it legitimate for me to find out where he go this person goes to church and then just look at his pastor's sermons for the past 20 years looking for campaign fodder so that we can run ads uh, against the person, so whatever this person might have said. And what does that do to the prophetic voice that a pastor has? Um, and then, this is a lot of little questions rolled into one, should pastors have a political voice? So, that's a lot. Well, um, every, we, yeah, we're gonna, the, the, everybody uh, can jump in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Paul, well, well, that's the, you. The, 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 
I'm not a I'm not a uh, election historian, so I'm not sure if if this has happened before exactly in this way. But I think the pastor problem. I don't remember that phrase. Uh, yeah. And as a pastor, it's kind of an interesting <laughs> phrase to have uh, floated. You are and the I'm problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm sure uh, I, 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 I think it was an interesting one and an appropriate one. So I think it's it's a new phrase, and uh, I think it's not going to go away. Um, but I think there's there's various um, categories of pastor problems. Uh, there's the there's the the personal pastor problem, which was uh, exemplified in Jeremiah Wright uh, and uh, and Sarah Palin's uh, pastors, both at uh, Wasilla. Uh, Assemblies of God, as well as uh, Wasilla Bible Church, and so both of them had their um, had their their uh, immediate effects. And so, through Jeremiah Wright, a lot of people were introduced to the concept of or the the theology of uh, of Black Liberation theology, which is uh, with with unsympathetic interlocutors, and uh, that that also happened with, um, as you said, with uh, various uh, uh, pastors of Sarah Palin who. Um, you know, introduced us to uh, Jews for Jesus, uh, David uh, uh, Brickner, who um, who said or insinuated that uh, Palestinian terrorists were um, the result of Jews not accepting Christ, and so uh, all of these, you know, those were the those were the personal pastors. I'm going to say more about that. But the second category is the public pastor, which is more what mm -hmm. Senator McCain experienced, which is uh, the the Hagee and the, the, who who said who. Um, when you get uh, when a Republican gets the Catholic League and Bill Donahue upset, that's unusual. <laughs> and and uh, he, he he called um, you know the Catholicism uh, uh, the great whore. And uh, Rod Paisley, who um, who called Islam the greatest religious enemy our civilization in the world, and this false religion must be destroyed. And the third pastor problem was actually. Um, Something that was a holdover for for that also affected John Kerry, which was the oppositional pastor problem, where uh, yeah, uh, di right. uh, diocese uh, arch uh, arch uh, rather bishops um, were uh, refusing uh, or publicly saying that they would refuse to give Joe Biden uh, communion uh, because of his stance on uh, on on abortion. And so these were major storylines for the campaign in a way that I don't remember them being in past campaigns. And I think part of this was because this was a campaign without an incumbent. And so people were really looking, well, how, how do we know what this candidate, these candidates are about? What are they made of? And so, so the character assessment piece was very big. And let's try for any clues. But the other piece is, is YouTube. And the ability for all of us just to go immediately to um, YouTube and see this, you know, this this pastor talking about witchcraft, and it was, you know, and 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 to to have uh, have the, these viral, um, you know, uh, conversations, and so so and 24-hour news cable, which which really was hungry for anything. Um, so these were these were factors in, in why this was a big deal. The result is is that people were introduced to. Um, the worldview of religion, and uh, in case this is a surprise for any, anybody, religion is a crazy wild thing. <laughs> and if you don't have a context or a history for understanding the worldview of a religious belief, then it sounds even crazier or wilder. And so what we had is a lot of symbols, a lot of uh, uh, language that was understandable from the inside and where, where it, was, it was contextualized, and from the outside it was absolutely incomprehensible. So we got snippets of sermons, and we also had these, the, the most dangerous one was the Jeremiah, which is, uh, it's named after the prophet Jeremiah, where basically um, 
the, the country has sinned and God doesn't like sinners and so God's going to damn the country. And this is a this is a this is you know based on the prophets of the the Bible. And I think that what actually actually what Wright, Hagee and 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 Kroon have in common were perhaps that they all view themselves as prophets. And they were all speaking in the wilderness and so 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 they 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 felt like it was their obligation to condemn. And and that looks particularly problematic, and this is, this is, I think, what was the most problematic about the pastor problem, is where, where this came up most saliently was, was that many times these um, sermons seemed to be or were perceived to be directed at a demographic, an entire demographic. So you had uh, Hagee against the Catholic Church, huge population, partially against Islam, Brickner against the Jews, right against white America, big population. And so these, the all, you know, all of these groups felt like they were under attack by the pastor of, and, and then all of the people who were in opposition exploited them. And so, so I think that's what really, the, the way this really came about was uh, religion is, it was a great positive, but it was a great negative in, in, this, in this way, especially when it, it seemed to be directed at an entire demographic of American voter. Um, and so my, you know, my feeling is pastors will always have political views because pastors of whatever tradition are dealing with people and politics is about people and politics is about morals and politics about, um, about uh, how we relate and how we, how we should live in the world. And so that is going to be a, a truth, but, but I think what is going to be very interesting in the future is to see how um, you know, those, you know, the kind of masters of the universe in training, those who are in it to win it, kind of like you know, calculating people, are going to be very careful about where they go to church from now on or where they go to their religious service. They are going to be vetting their pastors oh <laughs> before they get in there. And, because, and my, my, my worry in some ways around this is that you're going to have a group of political, a political class that will only attend a church that has kind of like uh, God is good, love is good, America is good, and they'll say that week after week, and then, you know, I can stay in this church, but we're going to be, we're going to be actually, we're not going to be having political leaders who are exposed to r religion in its most salient and, and stark form. Anybody? Six-year-olds start vetting their Sunday school teachers. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I think, but I do think once people realize that they want to have a political career, they're going to be listening very carefully to their pastors. Yeah. Wow. Sure. Well, my my um my thought on Brother Hagee was had more to do with the McCain campaign than it did Hagee. It suggested that somewhere over the past four years, on that side of the aisle that some knowledge or depth had gone hiding behind a tree somewhere because it was really unusual to me to see McCain go sprinting as hard as he could to get this endorsement yeah. and roll it out there when everything that subsequently came out was there on YouTube and to be Googled around. And I thought, um, you know, where has this um, in-depth knowledge from the religious right gone. So his campaign hadn't done their homework. Yeah, I thought that um, that it was pretty rough. And then let me throw, throw out a quick one, even though I think Hagee's really interesting. The Palin piece for me as, as an evangelical, when I would watch the YouTube of the prayer and the blessing, I wouldn't find it all that problematic. 
to be quite honest, um, thinking of it in context of an evangelical service and being reminded that we come from diverse churches and backgrounds. We often disagree, um, but there is a certain level of respect that we've got to hold up, even in politics, um, where it sometimes can be very hard, whether we're looking at Dr. Wright or what's going on in Palin's Assemblies of God Church or non-denominational church. Yeah, I'll just on the Hagee thing quickly, I mean, I think that um, it's easy to forget, and I did, because you kind of want to push it out of your mind, but the sequence of events where they did have this history, this knowledge of the anti-Catholic statements he'd made in the past, and there was kind of an orchestrated public apology where uh, right. he flew in and met with uh, Bill Donahue and everything was okay. Um, and then moments after that, uh, there were some anti-Semitic comments that were uh, found, and then that was it. Um, yeah. So McCain rejected his endorsement. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the, the sad part for me is that, um, you know, many candidates across the spectrum now have gotten better about talking about their values, whether they're, they have a, you know, formal religious tradition or not. And I don't think, you know, I think you can speak about your values and where they come from, from a faith tradition or from a secular tradition. And so many have gotten better at that. And people have been, you know, group Burns and others have been helping uh, public officials get better at that. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. The, the sad part is that uh, there's a shadow side where now religion is used in these kind of political tactics yeah. of guilt by association, you know, sort of politics of personal destruction, um, and where it's used as a weapon. Um, and I think that's, that's a really sad uh, part of it, where you see people battling it out, kind of, you know, whether it's around communion uh, in, in, our, in our context, the Catholic context, or, yeah, your pastor, where religion becomes a, a, a wedge or a, a, a weapon to use in a political campaign. Um, you can probably speak about uh, Senator Hagan's, Senator-elect Hagan's experience of that, so. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of uh, using religion as a weapon and a wedge. Oh, sure, Could I'm I sorry, just, Terrence, I, I please, I just would yeah. love to just respond sure. because I, I think that, well, just, just to the question of whether or not pastors should have a political voice, sort yeah. of historically, and I'm, and I'm glad to hear Paul sort of say the point about history and context and placing these things in, in that paradigm, and, and, and there's a need for that. Historically, some of the best social movements that, that point to the greatest moments in America uh, had a, and Jim Wallace writes a lot about this, had a, had a spiritual underpinning, right? And, and, I, and I, I would tend to say, yes, pastors will have a, a political voice going forward. Um, the challenge is, is that, and, and so some of my, my sensibilities, standing in that tradition, standing as a minister, uh, some of my sensibilities about sort of uh, media peering in on sacred services are a little, you know, are, are, it, it, it sort of makes me a little uneasy. The one thing that I do know is this, is that when, the incendiary, when, when there, there are the incendiary comments, uh, the negative comments that are sort of used to be divisive, uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's very useful for uh, sort of civic engagement, and I think that there's sort of a standard for pastors that if there's going to be a serious uh, civic uh, engagement, um, there's going to need to be uh, an ethic of uh, uh, you know, common good that we can rally around, that our differences won't be used for divisiveness, mm -hmm. but that in, in, the, in spite of our differences, we can sort of come together and say that, um, that charity and tolerance and those sorts of things will be lifted. And so I, I'm hoping that as we move forward, and just, just last point, you know, at, in the 2004 
um, election, we were sort of figuring out how to talk about faith in the public square. And I think that, that uh, the citizenry is sort of figuring out how we do that now also. I don't think we've gotten all of that figured out yet. And, um, and I think that we'll start to see a more sophisticated dialogue start to happen in public, I think. Okay, Shahed, I've got a question for you. <clears throat> um, during the 2008 campaign, as we all know, the word Muslim was often used as a slur. You didn't have to say anything else. Obama's a Muslim, and that s allegedly said it all. So Muslims really, in some ways, were demonized. And the portrait was that if you were Muslim, you were a violent extremist, you were a terrorist, you were not a real American, you were not like us. There was an other thing about that. Um, and, during the and during the primaries, there were some conservative presidential candidates who just railed against Islamic extremism. It became a sort of a catchphrase as the transcendent issue of our time. And you and I have talked about this a little bit, and what you say is surprising, and I'd like you to talk about this a little bit more, because you say that despite all of this, some good came out of it. And you say that there was an upside for Muslim Americans to this negative treatment. So can you tell us a little bit what you think some of this upside some of these good things were and then also give us some thoughts about Muslim participation in the political process in the days ahead. Yeah, no. Absolutely um, and I don't want to downplay I mean now that we're past the election and we can take a sober look back yeah. at what happened um, uh, none of this is surprising to Muslims but when you think about the series of things you know the emails that went out the um, you know uh, accusing him of having a uh, you know, taking his oath of office in the Quran, like conflating him with uh, Congressman Keith Ellison, um, uh, you know, going into his family background, insinuating that somehow because his father or stepfather came from a Muslim background, that somehow that, like a virus that right. permeated him, you know, even <laughs> despite, you know, his very public Christian life. And this continued on and on. It's as, a, as if every single strategy, as soon as it stopped having an effect, um, people would pick up a new strategy, you know, and, and you know, we had you had things like this uh, obsession DVD. There's 28 million copies of this DVD called yeah, Obsession: yeah. Radical Islam's War with the West. You know, as if the average American could tell the difference between a Muslim and a radical Muslim. Um, went out, it, curiously enough, to all the swing states. Um, you know, and it continued all the way till the very end. As a matter of fact, in the week before the election, uh, there was a poll in Texas. 23% of all Texans still believed that Obama was a Muslim, even as of the week before the election. I mean, it, it speaks to and, and this was all, all these things that happened were grassroots efforts. They weren't necessarily orchestrated from, from up, you know, somewhere high. Um, the, the good part about that is, by the way, is that 11% of that, of that 23% still voted for Obama, <laughs> which, which I thought was a, I had to find the silver lining in things. That is a silver lining. <laughs> um, so, so what that did for Muslims is that, first of all, it kind of laid bare what it is we have to, I mean, it, it's all out there on the table. We know it's out there. We know it's pervasive. Um, and, and, and we have a good sense. We always had an idea that it was out there, but now we see it in all its kind of, uh, you know, raw kind of reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, having said all that, um, I think there was a lot of good that came out, uh, out, out of it in, in retrospect. Um, the main thing is that it didn't work, you know, is that, you know, and, and we would track the polls through all these crises and through all these efforts at, at using Muslim as a slur, even through the primaries, you know, when pretty much every candidate used Islam in some way to, to either uh, rally the troops kind of with, with fear or to kind of paint the other person as not being strong enough as a, of a leader. Yeah. Um, 
but, but every candidate, whether they were in the primaries or, or, or in the general election, that, that used that, um, it, it, the tactic failed. Yeah. And, and what that says to me is that hopefully in subsequent campaigns that uh, people will look back and say, well, you know, in the most heated kind of election environment that we had where we, where we threw out every possible use of Muslim or Islam as a slur, um, it, it didn't have um, the impact that we wanted it to have. So that's one good thing. The second is that Muslim Americans have always wanted to get involved in the political process like anyone else, but this was a really weird time for us. Um, uh, Muslims wanted to get involved, but they realized that if they were too visible, that that could be used against uh, uh, Senator Obama at the time. And so uh, there was a lot of hesitation, um, especially among Muslim organizations, which were mm -hmm. trying to be more public about um, uh, being included in the political process. What happened, I think, in the, in the end, it was a very good thing, which was the, um, the organizations took a step back, not wanting to kind of cause problems, but it, it forced the average Muslim at the grassroots level to get involved. No. And, and I think in doing that, they found their real power. And, and in this, uh, I mean, the kind of history of Muslim political involvement um, you know, dates back to kind of, for example, in the year 2000, there was kind of very public uh, endorsement of Bush by, by Muslim Americans at the time. Um, and, and then uh, there was a very large swing right back in 2004, uh, and, and which has continued. About 75% of Muslims in 2004 uh, voted for Kerry, and the preliminary numbers right now are about 90%, 90, 90 to 95% who voted for Obama. Wow. Um, but that happened at a very grassroots level where people kind of took it upon themselves, you know, like, like a lot of people, this election got, were very animated to work at that grassroots level, and in and, and doing so um, found uh, places of, uh, uh, of inclusion within political parties, and I'm talking both Democratic and Republican parties. I mean, there was a really great instance that happened a few weeks ago where uh, a group of Muslim Republicans at a McCain rally confronted uh, somebody selling these kind of Obamas and Muslim stickers at, at a rally and were able to, with the support of other McCain supporters, drive this guy off of, of the rally. And it shows you how, you know, you couldn't do that from the outside. Right. You know, it's very difficult to do that from the outside and the old way would be like for a Muslim organization to press a press release or something like that. But when you include yourself inside like that, in the grassroots, you can affect change much more easily. Um, and, and just from speaking to, to people who were working in both campaigns, that's what they found. Especially, I think, the, the Muslims who worked in, within the Obama campaign as well, you know, when they would knock on doors and they would hear that, you know, but, but he's a Muslim. And they'll say, well, I'm a Muslim and, you know, I'm a normal person. Mm -hmm. And just meeting somebody like that, you know, helps to break that down. Um, and that's where it happens. It's not going to happen in, in PD, PR or media. It's going to happen at that personal level. So I think we discovered that as a community this time. And um, the Muslim community is probably going to, take that forward as a lesson moving forward. And knowing full well that every possible arrow that could have been slung at us was slung at us this time, and they all fell by the wayside. Anybody, please? Interesting. From last year, there was this big Islamofascism Islamo oh, oh, effort right. on <laughs> campuses around the country, and it was, it was sponsored by the college uh, Republicans. Yeah or across campuses, and so at Princeton, it was very clear that everyone who showed up, aside from the, you know, the eight college Republicans who had mm -hmm. invited David Horowitz mm -hmm. to Princeton, um, were there in opposition. And it felt to me like a very short-sighted uh, approach by the, the, Republican, the college Republicans and the Republican Party in general to alienate an entire uh, community. Again, yeah. this entire demographic felt 
felt uh, uh, um, like they were being singled out, and so, and it seemed like you know these are these are students in much you know who who are somewhat socially conservative in other in other regards, but who will never vote Republican mm -hmm. because of this memory of see of seeing what happening you know so it just seems like there's a lot of short sightedness in the in right. the, you know, and I do have to to give uh, um, Senator McCain credit at this point. I mean the only reason that he disavowed Rod Parsley's endorsement was because of his anti-Muslim right. statements. And, and for him to do that in a very public way, I mean, I'm sorry that, that that message didn't percolate to certain segments mm -hmm. uh, within this party, but I mean, I have to give him credit for that, for, for doing that, because that, that kind of set the tone which should continue. Mm -hmm. You know, my experience on the diversity of our country and how we get along has a lot to do with, well, the example being from a rural area spending a few years in Hong Kong, living in D.C. for about 10 years now, and going back home and having friends I love very much who have chosen to spend their life back home. And there's much less diversity there. And their experience, therefore, is a lot different than mine. And, you know, I oftentimes wonder and think about, you know, pockets of diversity how it impacts us, pockets where there's less diversity, how it impacts us. It creates different ways of thinking in the country. When you work in a congressional race, you're not in a microcosm of this country. You know, you may be in a congressional district that's 92% evangelical and, um, you know, that's all, you know, a total of 99% white and black. And um, so the dialogue going forward is really important. You know, we've been handed what I consider a real blessing, uh, an opportunity for the better angels to to not just soar and feel good on election night, but to go forth and speak to this country and speak to the world. And it's going to take dialogue about our diversity and really sharing who we are as individuals and as groups with the whole of the country so we can all move together. And it's, Speaking of diversity, Burns, um, let's talk about your work and that you've done with a, a progressive, moderate, conservative faith groups, uh, working on this on a whole variety of issues. Uh, in some cases, in this campaign, can you talk about these alliances a little bit? Uh, in your view, is this a new thing? Has this been going on for a long time? Um, how well does this has this collaboration worked during the campaign? And when you look ahead towards um, a lot of these interfaith efforts, a lot of these collaborations on on uh, issues. What are some pitfalls? What are and what is some of the promise in the years ahead of these alliances? And um, putting that in a bucket right there, um, include some thoughts about secular progressives as well. Um, what if that voice is being marginalized at all? If it's a big inclusive tent, or how that works out? Okay. Um, <laughs> Go. That's, <laughs> that's a good question. And going back to the end of the Kerry Bush race, yeah. the weeks that followed, you remember there was torrential downpour of writing about values voters, and somehow values voters were just focused on two or three issues. Nothing else seemed to be a value. Right. Um, right. Now forget the war, forget yeah. poverty. Yeah. But I was with, um, with Ms. Pelosi at the time. I was working in her office. We had a long conversation about this and out of it came the formation of the House Democratic Faith Working Group. 
and it became one of these little points of light. There were several that popped up about the same time in the party to start addressing, seeking to have a conversation across the country. You know, through leading that from Ms. Pelosi, I met Alexia, we got involved in our work together. The good Reverend Dr. Professor Sean Casey's here, and he was in and out of the faith working group and helping us understand how to move forward. But we'd start having conversations. We'd bring in a minister from New York City or from Dallas, Texas or somewhere and bring them in before um, House Democrats and close the door and say, this isn't about a photo, this isn't about press, we just want to talk. And we would sit down often with a very conservative minister, the door closed, and would simply open the conversation. A member of Congress, Ms. Pelosi or someone would say, what are the things we agree on? We know that there are things we agree on. Let's find them and let's work together. And they would start talking in this room and over an hour, hour and a half, there would be legitimate substantive conversations on climate change, on Darfur, on energy, you know, poverty, on all of these issues to where we would leave with a new relationship and with a plan that involved them helping us on that issue. Policy trumping politics in a lot of ways here um, are taking precedence, taking the front seat. Um, we took that into the campaigns in the 2006 cycle and key congressional races around the country and had uh, magnificent results out there creating new relationships. But the great thing about it, through all of this, we never once questioned the principles we had as Democrats or as progressives, really. It's larger than that. You know, the, the principles we have, we would take them to the table and say, this is who we are can we talk about it? And um, we've had a lot of success. It's, it's, it's gone well around the country. And, and, you know, just over these past few weeks, there have been some moments in congressional races around the country where there was very obvious, you know, there was a 527 that would show up and launch an attack on what would happen to be the Democratic candidate. This is important to note for the values involved here on the Democratic candidate, but it was a bizarre or in a way just an obvious bad attack. It was wrong. And all of a sudden we would see the state Christian coalition, Christian two C's, Christian coalition attack the Republican 527 wow. and tell them to get the hell out of Dodge. And they were doing. They weren't doing it for Democrats or Republicans. They were doing it because they saw the issue being addressed, being done so wrongly, and they were saying so. So, you know, I like to think that in some ways this conversation has helped both sides better speak to all of our values and address them and speak up when things are wrong. So it's it's, you know, it's been a healthy process. People are digging like crazy into numbers right now, trying to figure out if it was a success or not. And, you know, you have to remember there's 20, 30 years of um, organizing on the conservative side. Progressives, we've been at it for a good solid 36 months or so. Um, so, 
you know, things aren't too bad when you start looking at plus five, plus seven, in really core evangelical and Catholic areas of the country. You pick up that much. That's really good out there. You dig into these congressional races where the groups like the, the, the Christian Coalition saw fit to engage on issues, and you're going to see really dramatic increases for the progressive candidate in those. And in all these races, I'm talking about the progressive candidate won, and won by big margins in very conservative areas. So it's been an interesting journey, and I think it's been worthwhile because we've been able to advance progressive values in, in unlikely places and stay true to our guns um, while having ahead, those conversations. Is there a danger that, say, uh, the groups look at the numbers and say, wow, we did really well, and there, there may be a temptation to shave off your values a little bit if you can get bigger wins or bigger margins? I mean, yeah. can success be... Um, oh, not dangerous is the wrong word, but I mean, you know, how do how do we stay true to the core values? Yeah, what's the um, you know, the poli sci one on one absolute power corrupts absolutely, you know, and we've got a lot of um, morning prayer and soul searching to do as we enter this majority period to make sure we're doing this right. Um, Start out on your knees. Everybody. That's right. <laughs> um, as Congressman Lewis says, put some feet on your prayers, you know to take what we know to be true and right and put it into action. Um, yeah, that's a challenge. And it's something that, you know, when you start dealing with faith and politics, you know, you've got to realize you're dealing with the foundation and the core of who people are and what they believe. It's where their values come from. And so you just don't run out there with a quick poll and then figure out how to, how to, you know, bend people to your will. I mean, they're looking for a higher will than that. And so you've got, you've got to remind yourself of that really every morning. It is a daily renewal. You will renew yourself daily that, A, every voice, no matter how small, no matter how large, no matter how much you disagree, every voice has a place in the public square. And I think that's what the progressive faith movement one thing we have to cling to that we're not about diminishing other voices we're about creating equal and fair conversation because mm -hmm. what I've observed and what I believe from the beginning was that our issues largely can win out if there's just a fair conversation out there where we can talk about poverty and how to deal with it our issues we're better if we can just create the conversation and how people listen to us and engage. So the public square, there has to be, you know, we fight for everyone's voice, not for a louder voice. Um, number two is that we have to go forward in this understanding, and again, I'm going to use the word conversation. It's better to have a conversation than not. Mm -hmm. You know, we stay strong with our principles and what we believe, but we take it to everybody and we invite everybody to the table for a conversation. If we're strong enough believers in what we believe, you know, we're going to stick. And going forward in a majority here in D.C., we're going to have to be the voice for that sometimes. Um, we don't want to get caught in, um, um, 
you know, some of the failures we've seen over the past, four, you know, four and eight years where people have thought that they were going to, um, you know, create nearly a one-party or a one-point-of-view system. And we know we've heard that. I mean, Mr. Rove and others have talked about right. that in public. And that was, obviously, they didn't do it. And, um, you know, we can um, do a whole lot better job than that by keeping our conversation on a much higher ground. Am I answering your question? Absolutely. All right. Good. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Anybody have to add to that? Alexia and then Paul. And I think this is an important point you made about the Christian Coalition challenging this 527 group. And I think that sort of illustrates this proper, appropriate posture of faith communities that they need to stay, we need to stay independent also and maintain our sort of prophetic moral critique of whatever party it is that uh, has a majority and of you know political leaders. And I think when that boundary gets blurred, and we've seen that probably in the way religion has engaged in the public square and politics in previous years, where there's too much of a identification and then people of faith end up feeling, I think, um, uh, compromised and dis you know disillusioned uh, that they sold out you know for what they wanted for poli immediate political power or traded off um, values for other values and didn't get what they really wanted because they kind of merged with the the party uh, the party in power so I think that's that's a really important point just one other thing too I think this engagement on policy the conversation that goes deeper than just um, language or sound bites or throwing in a little you know sprinkling in Jesus in your in your uh, remarks. I mean, I think we saw that maybe early on when progressives were first tr doing some faith outreach, and I think um, it's much more substantive than that, and I think that's excellent, and that the engagement needs to be on, you know, poverty reduction. How are we going to engage together? And I think that'll be great, you know, going forward. And I think um, faith communities that are at odds with, for example, President-elect Obama will need to engage. I mean, we would, you know, I think that we'll need to engage constructively and even on the differences, and that'll be a, a positive thing. But I think that substantive policy engagement is a great point that you raised, mm -hmm. Burns. Paul? I'm curious, uh, this is actually somewhat of a, this is a question. I, I think one of the tensions I see is, is uh, specifically, and I think uh, Alexia will hopefully talk about this more, how abortion was dealt with in this, in this election cycle. And, uh, and so, and maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe this we can, uh, we can put this on hold, but, I think there was a tension between really trying to appeal to those who, for whom abortion was absolutely uh, a sin, and, and you know, conceptually believes it begins at uh, uh, human life begins at conception, and appealing to those voters, and in some ways, like um, sidestepping uh, the, for instance, uh, faith communities for reproductive rights. Uh, you know, like it, it seemed like there was a slight shift in maybe strategy for progressive candidates that we're not going to, we're going to try to appeal <laughs> to this other thing. And that's where I'm wondering if progressive, religious progressive uh, 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 efforts might come into conflict with some of the more secular uh, progressive efforts and it, uh, specifically on that issue. So I don't know, if we, maybe we should wait uh, if you're gonna speak more to this, but uh, it just is something that's, that's been very uh, in my mind. I, I, I happen to attend the faith caucuses at, at the DNC and what was noticeably absent were, you know, the 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 the, the women's groups, and I, I mean, it just seemed like it was really not a place where a lot of the uh, reproductive rights folks would be, or the gay rights folks. Part of the question was about the interaction between 
the traditional progressive secular groups and faith groups, and that's a big that's important. And I'm I'm going to yield to Alexia on that particular topic. She has been in there much longer than me. Thought about it. <laughs> you but get to talk about that. Certainly, and this is something Alexia knows. She was in a lot of these meetings, but you know, in the House Caucus once a week. Um, and I've been out now for a couple of years in, in the political world. But once a week we would have a meeting, kind of a friends and family meeting of all of our different groups around town, our friends. If the budget's coming, you know, we would have different labor groups and education groups, different ones that supported the caucus position come in and would sit down and talk about ways to move message um, to deliver people active on the issue calling back into the Capitol and encouraging the proper votes and stuff like that. And as we started engaging more in an organized fashion with the faith community, we started inviting them to these meetings. And the first few times, they were just kind of there and hanging out. And then we would come up with a plan and we would plug in let's say the Episcopal Church and the general board from the Methodist Church and they would show a lot of zeal, they would show a lot of know-how and they would show the ability to deliver that message to a whole community that maybe labor, education and others weren't delivering to. So as time went on there was a very practical reaction to where um, those, you know, more, you know, the ones I knew from those secular groups, some of them go to church with me, but, you know, the non-church groups, you know, started asking in some meetings, well, where are the Methodists? Why aren't they here? Don't we need them in on this? And um, so there were some practical um, early marriages there of seeing how you could advance an issue much better when we were all on it together. As long or as short as you want to be. <laughs> but I think it's important to note, I mean, the abortion was and still is a moral issue for Catholics, and it was certainly an issue in the campaign. And I think um, a, a touchstone for us, we did a study that we released this summer. Um, we commissioned by two political scientists, um, one at, who's at Penn State and one at Georgetown, called Reducing Abortion in America, the Impact of Social and Economic Effects. And it looked at uh, what kinds of policies we have in place. It was all 50 states, 20 years. And it compared states that uh, on WIC, uh, Women, Infant, Children, uh, Nutrition Program, uh, economic assistance uh, rates, uh, employment uh, rates, um, and several other factors, um, and tried to look at what kinds of policies or combinations of policies have the most impact on reducing the abortion rate. There was a prior study that a partner group did in Kansas that also included uh, health care, uh, S-CHIP, and Head Start. And you know, when you get a combination of those, those kinds of policies that support vulnerable women and families, at-risk families, uh, or help prevent uh, unintended pregnancy, you can put together a great, comprehensive, compassionate approach uh, that will get at significant reductions in abortions, which in fact is an incredible common ground for most Americans, a majority of Americans, almost 70% of Catholics, want that kind of comprehensive, compassionate, root cause approach to the abortion issue. And I think they're tired of being sort of put on either end of the extreme and just debating legal status as the kind of litmus test for whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, or those categories being kind of inaccurate in terms of where most Americans are, or most 
I would say Catholics are. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a great hope in this common ground approach and looking at these policies and common ground with um, with the pro-choice uh, groups that you know. Some of the organizations supported the language that was in the Democratic platform for the first time that talked about the need, uh, the, the policies that the Democratic Party would support to reduce the number of abortion, including prenatal, postnatal health, adoption, strong adoption mm -hmm. programs. So, mm -hmm. you know, people can come around uh, together around supporting WIC and economic assistance, prenatal care, postnatal care. Um, and I think that the data shows that it's these kinds of policies that right. are effective. So I'm so. interested in this because, I mean, there are some issues that, that, that faith groups are going to look at as ethical issues that emerge out of sort of how they're understanding themselves morally. Mm -hmm. And, and it, will make, it will make some things difficult. Um, but, but I'd be interested to sort of hear your, your feedback. But I think the value is, is that there are some issues that we can come to the table uh, on together and we can work on together. Um, that, that, that there is a sort of a value of uh, the, the things that can get done as opposed to sort of the, the ones that, will, that are still uh, too difficult and, and still separate, you know, um, you know, despite that sort of moral impulse. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And just to do a little plug for CAF here, uh, Jessica Ahrens here has written a paper or a, a, report, a long report called More Than a Choice, which attacks or which talks about uh, uh, abortion and reproductive rights in a holistic way because, in fact, um, when you start a family, how you start a family depends on so many things, economic conditions, social conditions, the health of the mother, where you, where you live. It's never isolated in a vacuum. So some of the work that we've done speaks to, the, to, to a more holistic frame as well, which is how people live their lives. Um, there's a confluence of factors that go on. So Terrence, I've got a question for you, and we, we talked a little bit about the generation gap earlier. And can you talk to us a little bit about first-time voters, especially from the African-American community, and give us a profile, uh, a sort of snapshot of who some of these voters were, especially from faith communities, what the concerns were, what issues they were voting on, and what do you think needs to happen for younger first-time voters to stay engaged in the political process so this, this won't be just like a first-time, an only-time thing? Well, it's interesting. Um, they, there's this term that's being uh, pushed around called millennials and those who are who are uh, born somewhere after 1975 and you know are now, now and then all the way down to those who are about 18 now 76 million of them uh, are believed to be in the country right about now or more um, they are an interesting group because they they represent sort of a shift socially right there's there's they are the group that um, is more connected to the technology than we've ever seen historically um, they don't like to receive bills in the mail. They want to see it tech on their computer and put it in their favorites folder, you know. They pay their bills uh, through their bank accounts and just send them off. I think there might be some other folks on the panel yeah. who can say that they do this. And so, but millennials are particularly attached to these, to screens. There's always a screen in front of them. Um, Harvard did an interesting study. Uh, Harvard Institute of Politics did an interesting study uh, with regard to those who are on the, on the younger end of the spectrum uh, those who are on college campuses, and they notice that uh, uh, young voters on college campuses are becoming increasingly more religious. So that's sort of the first thing as far as profiles are concerned. Um, the study actually showed that seven in ten young voters acknowledged that they were um, that their religious values informed how they engage in the public. Right. 
So the first thing is that they're increasingly more religious. The second thing about this, this demographic that was interesting, uh, according to the Harvard study, is that uh, the millennials are not monolithic. They, um, they, they are not easily identified by traditional sort of labels as progressive or conservative. And the Harvard study um, uh, actually uh, interjected sort of a religious centrism and secular centrism into the mold and found that many of their students were, were identifying themselves as religious centrists. And so they're sort of centered. Um, so that leads uh, us to potentially think that they are a, a group of folks who are issues-oriented voters. This is sort of what I'm seeing as I'm pastoring, that, that the folks who are sort of 18 to 35, issues are really driving how they understand themselves showing up. And, and their faith is influencing how they look at these issues. So the economy. Um, I have folks who are graduating with master's degrees that are asking questions about the economy because they're not able to find a job um, with their master's degrees. Or, or when it comes to the economy and undergrads. Um, we're in November now, and um, their father or their mother has lost their job, and they're wondering if they can go back to school in January. Um, and, so, and so the economy matters to them. Um, it, you know, as, as sort of an illustration. Um, 2004, we saw our largest number of young voters turn out, only to be surpassed by 2008. Uh, studies have said that uh, we eclipsed the 2004 numbers at 5 o'clock p.m. on Election Day. Um, and so we, we galvanized uh, a large percentage of young voters in this particular election. It was amazing. And they weren't only progressive voters, they were also conservative. So for instance, there's a geographic piece to this, right? There, uh, in in uh, Virginia, Obama won by about 52% in Virginia. 60% of the young voters voted for Obama. But in, in uh, Oklahoma, we had, we had uh, McCain to win by a large percent, and 60% and of young voters voted for McCain. So there's a ge geographical piece to this also. Um, but to your question, Sally, about sort of how do we keep them engaged, you know, the, the question about young voters is whether or not they're going to be fickle. You know, they'll, they'll show up now or they say they'll show up, and will they stay engaged? I, don't, I think history will have to tell us that. But I think the one thing that we do know is that, is that the progressives and the conservatives did a good job of reaching out to them. Um, and I think that they, create, they, they uh, are a great opportunity for us for an engaged and mobilized citizen, citizenry going forward uh, if we are to, um, to sort of continue that. Most of them are learning a whole different way of voting. It's called early voting. <laughs> and, you know, you saw many states like North Carolina, what, a couple of million people early voted? Or it's astronomical. Well, by election day, it looks like to me that Senator McCain had to find six or seven percentage points just to get even yeah. to try to have yeah. a shot at winning. And if you don't, uh, as a if you don't create a whole new mindset that election day is a multi-week day and set up your campaign strategy like that, you're in trouble going forward. Well, I think it's the early vote. I just want to say one more thing. that I think early voting is one piece, but there's an interesting book that just came out called A Millennial Makeover, and, it's, and the subtitle is MySpace, Facebook, YouTube, and, 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 uh, and Politics, or something to that effect. And I think that the one thing that we can say uh, you know, with, with uh, some conviction is, is that this particular campaign season transformed 
how campaign seasons will probably be run throughout the future. Right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I think that if there's anything that we can draw from that model is, is that we can not only use that in the campaign seasons, but we can also use that going forward. And so, um, you know, you have these huge databases that were created of young voters. Those databases aren't going away. You know, right. they're, they're, they're here to stay. And, and, and when, when things are coming up, I think that those are a great resource for mobilizing citizens, for, for mobilizing young citizens. Okay, sure. Yeah, I think so, uh, it's all about, it really is all about inclusion. I think when the youth vote was originally tagged as a youth vote, is you know I think a lot of youth were cynical. Oh, you're just coming to me every four years, and then you ignore me. But um, I think especially with the internet, especially with the multiple opportunities for campaigns or just you know politics to engage with them over the internet, where they are generally, um, they're going to feel more included, and they're going to you know, not be as fickle mm -hmm. as they possibly were in the past. I just want to ask a question. We, we talked about values and, and per, uh, somewhat values in church. And I'm curious <coughs> about those, those uh, you know, specifically African-American and Latino voters who voted for Obama. And this is a candidate who said that we needed to include gay people at Ebenezer Baptist Church, you know, so he, which is something I've never heard of before. But then they did support Prop 8. And I'm just wondering, like, how you support a candidate who is, you know, I mean, I'm just curious about that. Like, what are the messages there, and how can we do better on talking about um, specifically around gay rights? Because that's another example of a sure. secular value that is, is being framed as a secular value, and then there's the church attached, and sometimes those are in conflict. And I wonder um, maybe uh, if you have any experience about, uh, about uh, on that. It's been my observation that sort of historically the black, well, fir first and foremost, the black church is not monolithic, uh, you yeah, know, and, and uh, even, even for instance, the church where I serve is 22,000 members in New York City, but, but it's only sort of a, a, a portion of, uh, and it can only reflect a portion of sort of black church sensibilities right, across right. the nation. Um, but one of the things that we've sort of seen is that, um, is that, is that African-Americans tend to be, um, and, and sort of broad strokes, but uh, uh, politically progressive and then, and then, um, and then uh, uh, tend to be uh, conservative when it comes to moral issues. Right. Um, I think that might point to some of, some of what we've seen, we've seen there. Uh, it's so, interesting okay. that the candidate it was very right. explicitly supporting right. of gay people, right. although he hasn't been right. explicitly supportive right. of gay marriage. But, uh, but it was just, a, it's an interesting kind of bumping true. up against. We're about to go to questions to you in just a minute. I just want to um, briefly ask Alexia a question, and then we'll go to your question. I'll so be quick. And you'll be quick. <laughs> right, right. And, and it's a question similar to what I, what I had asked Burns, which is in terms of you are very involved in movement building, uh, Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good, uh, working on the, the progressive faith or the common good movement, and there have been some great successes with issues. And mm -hmm. sometimes when that happens, people think, well, there we had great success, now we can move on to other things. So funders might think that, mm -hmm. leaders might think that, advocates might think that. So briefly, um, how, do, how do we stop that from happening? How do you keep up the energy? Um, I think you're right. I mean, there's been success in, you know, in broadening, deepening the debate um, on the media front. Uh, we had this convention for the common good, first ever, with about 20 partners in Philadelphia um, and 800 people um, to put forward this platform for the common good. So there's been progress. I think um, the key is to just note that movement building is a long-term, you know, uh, process. 
and is deeper than just changing the media frame and um, you know strength projecting leaders, uh, national leaders, into the public square more robustly. Um, that we can't have a short attention span, and we have to remember this is a decades-long process, and that movement is bigger than politics. Um, movements are built to hold politicians accountable, and they need to be deeper and more long-term than one cycle of an election. Um, and they should never, as I said before, identify completely with a partisan you know, campaign or uh, administration. So I think that's just a kind of macro point. And Jim Wallace speaks about that very prophetically about uh, movements always precede political change, social movements. So we need to keep building the social and the faith movement uh, long term or we're never going to hold the political change that we want uh, long term. So I think that's, that's the lesson. And then I made the point earlier about the need to um, retain our prophetic voice and our moral voice and hold that distance uh, outside mm -hmm. um, of the political party. Um, so I think that's, that's it. short, that's but that's that it. Sounds great. Uh, I wanted to, can I just add, the, the youth vote, our, our partner, I think Faith and Public Life is here, is doing great research and resourcing for the interfaith um, progressive faith movement. And they did a poll in October, and this is just on the youth point, that showed, this is, I think, an interesting common good in government data point about young Catholics, that two-thirds of young Catholics, as opposed to 50% half of older Catholics, it's 18 to 35, um, want a more active, positive role of government, and even the question was more services, that government should deliver more services, mm -hmm. and they saw that they wanted a more active government. So two-thirds of young Catholics, 18 to 35, versus that's half of uh, older Catholics. So that's great. Well, thank you all. We'd like to take your questions now. I'm sure there are a lot, so we'll ask you to keep your questions brief, identify yourself, and please confine yourself to a question more than a comment. And um, if there are press questions, if anyone has a press question, we would like to start with that, and then we'll go to regular questions from the floor. Are there any press questions? Thanks. Sarah Posner with the American Prospect. Um, my question is about the pastor problem that we were talking about. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of encouragement to Democratic candidates to talk about their faith more. But does that invite the pastor problem in the sense that, you know, you're, they're being asked to foreground their faith to make religious voters more comfortable with them, yet that will make everyone say, well, what is that faith exactly? And how were you influenced by the religious figures in your life? Anybody want to talk about it? It invites a conversation about their faith. I'm not sure that that immediately equates to a problem. Um, right. But, you know, sure, every, you, you know, it's fair. I mean, some reporters chased after, you know, who was Senator Clinton's pastor. They spent most of the primary season trying to find him. And um, most days he was sitting in my office. Um, it, 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 you know, it's, yeah, it's fair. But what, you know, the question is, what do you do with it? How does the press respond and report? Um, you know, I mentioned this the other day at, um, at a panel. I mean, it's, it's you, um, sometimes faith is something that reporters don't know a whole lot about. I mean, they just don't. There are other issues, too. It's, you know, sometimes I don't think I know a whole lot about faith, you know, when things pop up in front of me and I, I try to understand what's going on. And um, then you've got these um, 
you know, 24-hour news cycles that aren't news anymore. You, I mean, I don't know when headline news became all commentary and, you know, you turn to CNN and Campbell Brown's pontificating and you can't find news even though there's cable news and, you know, print reporters are struggling with, with um, layoffs everywhere in a changing print world. It's hard uh, to dig into the facts you know, when they're, when they're multi-layered. And, you know, understanding a person's faith and understanding why they go to a church and they've chosen a church is extremely personal, it's extremely um, deep, and it requires that type of attention when you're writing about it. And I know that can be hard to accomplish. Um, but, yeah, I think it's fair game. I mean, the bottom line, sure. Why, why isn't it? And the, the conversation was out there this time. And I think the ultimate question is how did we deal with it as the reporters and the receivers of the news, you know? Sure. Just clarify, clarify one thing that I think that a, a church is more than the pastor. And so, you know, I mean, I think that the, a better question is to ask, well, what kind of faith community was this a part of? And I think that at least if, if it was reported at all, it was underreported specifically about Trinity Church in Chicago, like what, what kind of wider implications that church had for the community and things like that. So uh, I think the pastor problem is real. I think it's fair game, but it's also, I think, a sliver because most of us spend about 50% of time of every sermon saying, I don't agree with that. I don't even know what he's talking about. So, you know. Yeah, the pastors, you know. Oh. Pastors come and go. Really? I agree with everything really? we hope not. In the Alabama race, for in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, Bobby Bright, the Democrat, just won a seat there. It's the first time that party has picked up that seat since the 1950s. And the two candidates, Jay, I think it was Jay Love, Mr. Love and Bobby Bright, both deacons at First Baptist Church in Montgomery, and their families have been there so long, his pew, the Bright family pew, is called the Bright Spot, and the Love family sits on a pew called the Love Nest, and they're two pews apart. Just there's no name, they're not required to sit there, but that's where you sit every Sunday, right? That's been a long, <laughs> it's been a lot of tough Sundays in that church as they've gone through this. But, you know, you're just thinking about it. I mean, ultimately, the preacher there has done a really great job of walking this through. I mean, eventually he's going to be called or he's going to be, he's going to go off somewhere else and do another church. But those families are there. The churches yeah, you know, the, yeah. the churches are the families, at least from my tradition. Can I just quickly, oh, sure, quickly sure, respond sure. to it? And so I, I, I joke, though, but I, I think that that's true. I think that you're, you're not going to agree with every pastor. And, and, and I think that I'd like to sort of say, I think many pastors are taking sort of a humble road saying that they are trying to figure and work through some of these things as well. That, that pastors are trying to have the space to um, understand, so to the problem piece, understand the, many of these tough, tough, uh, tough issues. But to, to your question, you, you asked, um, does, does the expression of faith in the public sphere welcome the pastor problem? Okay, in an electoral, sure, political process, I think, I think the, the gift of sort of the expression of faith is not, not to the end that you might win over voters, but 
it gives you the ability to, to sort of express your deepest, truest values and to say that this is a part of the person that I am. And, and though we are a pluralistic nation, we are a religious nation. I mean, for the most, for, uh, in broad, broad terms, uh, as far as numbers are concerned, uh, many Americans, overwhelming majority of Americans, would say that they would, uh, that they uh, are, are ascribed to a particular religious tradition. And so I think that uh, it does create that kind of space for that dialogue, but not to the end that voters might be, but just to the end to express oneself and one's point of view. Uh, press question? Yeah, I'm Ann Ferris with the Rockefeller Institute. Um, can you move it ahead beyond the election to the new administration? Can you speak to how faith and faith groups will be involved in the policy direction? And I guess specifically um, Obama's projections for his council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships, I believe it will be called. He at one point had perhaps proposed making that even a <clears throat> cabinet-level position. Um, any any thoughts on where we may be headed now? Inside, uh, inside on that. I mean, my only comment is that my guess on the faith-based um, <coughs> spending, resourcing out there, I think you're going to see a lot of deep politicizing of that office. Um, over the last eight years, it had kind of become a, a political ball you know, over hiring practices and stuff like that. I think you're going to see that taken off the table and it's going to become much more of what it was in the 90s, which was something just more active in funding good programs out in the country that, that support the whole of the country. I, I, I think it's going to be much less political. I know our partner organizations, I mean, that many of the Catholic social justice organizations that work on debt relief and the Jubilee goals and uh, anti-poverty and arm, you know, disarmament issues, are going to be making recommendations for um, you know different appointments where they think you know their people not necessarily from their community but folks they have worked with that they think could help deliver on some of the policy goals uh, they they work for. Um, so and I think also just to mention this poverty reduction campaign, which many CAP and uh, Catholic Charities USA and Sojourners many have the same goal of uh, cut poverty in half in, in ten years. In ten years, um, and Senator Obama committed to that goal. And so I know many groups are working in a movement. Uh, fashion to um, continue to press for uh, government, you know, an organized effort, initiative to achieve those goals in all in a number of different departments. Well, later panel. Yes, Hi, I'm Terry Schroeder with the ACLU, and I've actually worked on a lot of these issues for over a decade um, <coughs> in Washington, um, particularly all the religion issues and. First, just briefly want to say, I mean, the work Burns did in the um, in the House was amazing in terms of really moving the ball forward and bringing people together. And I don't say that, uh, the caveat being um, I'm not kissing up because he did not agree with us all the time. But, you know, just those efforts were extremely critical and helpful. And in terms of this issue of moving forward, I mean, uh, for some of, some of these some of the organizations are in the room, but there are a number of very huge coalitions of religious organizations, civil rights, civil liberties, education, social services that have come together that are specifically looking at what are we going to do and how are we going to do it together. And I think one of the hopes um, is that we all do kind of go into this new 
administration into this new, with new opportunities and new thoughts about common ground and where do we start and do we really have to stay, you know, you know, hold on tight at one end or the other. So, you know, I just think that that's going to, they're going to, this, these conversations are happening already. Um, of course, obviously, there's also the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. A lot of the religion issues are very entwined with the um, civil rights and um, education and social service issues. So, you know, the bubbling up of this is, is occurring. And I know from my, my opinion, I am just hoping and praying that we will take this as a bounce and, uh, and, 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 and move forward uh, and start with all that common ground because I think we have a lot to do before we can get, you know, to, the ex to some of the other more controversial issues. And I guess, so I didn't mean it to be a comment, but since, some, since there was no real comment in detail on that, I wanted to say that. I guess I just would like to ask Burns and others, though, as we are looking forward, how or if you know, do we believe that's going to be replicated, that kind of bringing folks to the table, you know, in the House, in the Senate, in the administration? You know, how quickly do we think that's going to occur? And do we think that, you know, we're going to be able to not have a situation where, you know, you've got everybody kind of pounding the administration from different directions? And I think it, it's so much up, up to us. And your thoughts about how to make that happen and, and what you think will be happening, um, I'd love to hear. I meant, and I hope it is on record that the ACLU is praying for <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the There we go. Um, <laughs> th thanks for your comments. I think that, um, that it's enormously important for the House majority and the Senate majority and the administration to be um, utilizing the coalitions and talking to on a regular basis the groups that, um, that what you're talking about. That there needs to be, if, if um, not, and I'll say it, there needs to be a weekly meeting with the House and Senate of the various supporting coalitions and groups. Um, to talk about not just the calendar of the week, but what's coming up and how we're going forward, where we are on climate change or civil rights legislation, whatever that is. Um, dialogue, um, good, solid, honest dialogue can just cover a number of sins. And um, it can also help um, a guy trying to do faith outreach get a kind comment from the ACLU. <laughs> and. Um, um, you just have to work at it. I, I mean, I'd love to, to um, talk about this going forward and, and um, find some ways Great. to um, make sure we're doing this. We have time for one more quick question from someone. Oh, boy. We ha have we? Uh, you, sir, in the front. We'll ask you. And then, um, and then, we'll, and then we'll close. Uh, my name is William Grassi, MetaNexus Institute. This will be really quick. Rick Warren and Mitt Romney. Thoughts on both? Is this a ticket, a new ticket? <laughs> Warren Romney. The Warren Romney. Oh, 12. Yeah, oh, 12.
I'd say this, I thought Mitt Romney had a fabulous faith outreach office. And I thought they were smart, I thought they were very honest, and that they were trying to push the ball to a higher ground <coughs> over there, obviously in a way that would help Romney. I mean, it had positive implications, but they were doing it honestly. I've gotten to know some of those guys where um, have some common clients right now in the nonprofit world, and um, get, have gotten to know some of them. And if you take their PowerPoint on evangelicals, Sean, it is identical to one I would create on where they are, what they're thinking, the expanding conversation that evangelicals are looking for. They're creating the same set of thoughts that we are in a lot of ways, which indicates there's a lot of opportunity there, conversation. Um, you know, just briefly on Pastor Warren, I know Rick and Kay think a lot of them. Um, I know that he's tried to um, talk about um, a, a larger set of issues, but I'll throw this out. It's what didn't happen this time that happened last time. He was not part of, I don't even think there was one, but you know, a couple of weeks out from the last election day, he was part of sending a massive email out to millions of Christians around the country and preachers admonishing them on the Sunday before election to tell people to vote two or three values. I mean, it was very, and Warren was very involved in that. That didn't happen this time, and I think it's worth noting. Oh, just on that question, just a, a point that, um, I mean, I think it could be unfortunate if that Saddleback Civil Forum, I think, was considered the first debate. Um, because I, I do think that's problematic. It was actually the third in kind of a series of faith and values forums. The first was the one I mentioned um, that Sojourners and several groups sponsored on CNN. The second was the Compassion Forum that Faith and Public Life led and put together a broad spectrum at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, I think in April. April. And then they helped catalyze that Saddleback Forum. Uh, so I think August, those are appropriate so. uh, faith and values and politics forums, but um, I think. One quick, yep. Um, I think Muslim Americans were quite puzzled at how uh, Romney really slammed the door in our face, uh, even though a lot of other Republicans opened the door, considering you know he is also a religious minority that has had it used against him. And we thought that, uh, Muslims thought that, that perhaps he would understand our position, but we were very much let down. Thank you very, very much for coming. Um, our panelists can stay for a little bit longer if some of you have questions and want to uh, come up and talk to us. And just one quick thing that Alexia Kelly has written a fabulous book on Catholics and the Common Good and Social Teaching, and it is for sale in the lobby. So thank you very much, and thank our panelists. <laughs>